Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to have a fully vaccinated Callum Dewar back on the podcast. Callum is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office and the leader of our integrated global structuring practice, heading our outbound, inbound, and value chain transformation teams. Callum spent the first 20 plus years of his career working in the UK. Callum, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here. Nice to see you in person. It's, uh, it's been a while. So, Callum, before we dive into BEPS mm-hmm. 2.0, which I'm very excited to talk to you about, um, I had a kind of non-related question that I wanted to, to get a reaction. Mm-hmm. I, I know that you were born in Scotland, mm-hmm. right? But you spent a considerable part of your life in London, England, mm-hmm. and you've done a tremendous job educating me the difference between being British and being English, okay? But I wanted to get your thoughts about England making it to the final of the UEFA Cup and then losing in penalty kicks to, to, to Italy. How, how, what was your reaction to that? Forza Italia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at risk of upsetting any English people watching, but I'm Scottish. There are two teams, Scotland and anybody who's playing England. So the reason I mentioned that, I was hoping you were going to say that because as a St. Louisan, you know, we, we, we have a very similar philosophy in that our favorite teams are the Cardinals and whoever's playing the Chicago Cubs. Right. So I, I, I appreciated that you were the, the, one of the biggest Italian fans during that UEFA Cup final. For one match only. For one match only. <laughs> I, I, I understand. All right, so it's been a while since we've talked about the OECD and the BEPS 2.0 initiative. A lot has happened since we've had Will and, and others on the, on the podcast to talk mm-hmm. about these latest developments. Maybe for those that have recently just started tuning into the podcast and don't have a lot of background, can you just spend a, a few minutes reminding our listeners, first of all, what is the OECD? What role do they play in in developing tax policy? And then we can talk a little bit of an overview about Pillars 1 and Pillar 2. So the OECD largely play a sort of guidance overview role. It's a forum for the nations that are members of the OECD to come together and agree taxing policy. and historically, the OECD have been pretty heavily involved in two key areas, treaties and treaty policy and transfer pricing. Now, all that changed way back in 2014-2015 when the OECD undertook, undertook BEPS version 1, mm-hmm. which covered obviously the, the 15 working parties and all the papers that came out then, hybrids, etc., etc. And then they've rolled that forward into this, what has been called BEPS 2.0. I know that Will Morris, for example, always gets very angry when it's called BEPS 2.0. It's a different process. It's talking about reallocation of taxing rights um, in, and, and a minimum tax regime as well. So it's much more holistic than the targeted measures of the first version of BEPS. But what's important to remember is the OECD doesn't have executive authority to do anything. It's a body which operates through consensus. Uh, 
reports that are issued are consensus reports or, as we saw see more recently, reports that don't get to consensus and explain where the differences of opinions are if they can't get to consensus. And then those reports, it's up to the members of the OECD and now expanded, obviously, to include the inclusive framework, which is a much, much bigger body of countries than the OECD, um, it, it, to, to go away and take what's been recommended and and turn it into actionable items, execute the proposals in legislation. Yeah, there, there, there seems to be a number of misconceptions kind of out there about how law becomes law in respective jurisdictions, right? So to your point that the OECD makes these recommendations, but each respective jurisdiction has to actually go through what their legislative or regulatory process. Right. I mean, we've also have seen this with some of the OECD reports, and we'll unpack this throughout the course of the podcast, but yeah. there's almost been some presumption, presumptions by the OECD that the Treasury Department, and specifically Janet Yellen, could change law in the US and so far as, for example, a guilty, you know, by country, and we all know that that needs to be done by Congress. Yeah, I mean, the Green Book is, as far as the OECD appears to be concerned, is written legislation that just needs a process to go through enactment, which obviously is not the case. Yeah, it's very similar to the same reports that the OECD puts out. These are, you know, uh, documents on tax policy, not necessarily actual law. And I think that's going to cause some consternation over the next few months, I, I suspect. We can get into that, obviously. Yeah. So um, remind people, you talked about Pillar 1 reallocation of, of yeah. taxing rights and Pillar 2, a sort of minimum tax yeah. type concept. Tell us a little bit about, just remind our listeners kind of what Pillars 1 and Pillar 2 are. So, so Pillar 1 in its genesis was largely focused on the digital companies, the companies that were capable of earning revenue, significant revenues from jurisdictions without a physical presence. Um, And it was very focused on digital tech companies. Um, That's moved on a bit, and we can come back to why that is. But what Pillar 1 is largely focused at is saying there are some very profitable companies out there that earn profits largely by reference to the current transfer pricing model as to where the IP is located and probably don't pay much tax or as much tax as people would like them to in the jurisdictions in which they earn the money from, the Mm -hmm. the market jurisdictions. And so, you know, this started off as Pillar 1 as a a notional reallocation of profit along with a notional taxing nexus standard. And that's largely where it's gone, except it's moved away from purely focused on digital companies Mm -hmm. and merely now focused on very profitable, very big revenue companies with a, then a, a, a formula to say that of those multinationals that qualify under the filters, and the filters are significant. Mm-hmm. You're talking about, at least for the first seven years, $20 billion of revenue a year in order to be in the regime, mm-hmm. which obviously is, is a huge number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then even if you've got $20 billion of revenue, if you're profit margin isn't more than 10%, you're not in the regime either. So within those two filters, that narrows it down to a relatively small number of companies. Mm -hmm. There seems to be ongoing debate as to how many companies they are, but Mm -hmm. a relatively small number of companies with then the notion that some element of their excess profit over the 10% profit margin will be reallocated away from the IP centers to the market 
jurisdictions. Yeah, and this is a fundamental change to how right. we consider where taxing rights develop. Right? Yeah. We're, you know, when I was in law school, we talked, we learned what a permanent establishment was, and yeah. we've got a hundred years of precedence. And yeah. so now it doesn't really matter where you have that physical location or that nexus. This is where are your customers or where are your users? Well, it, it's in addition to those rules, so it's not seeking to replace those rules. Fair it's, it's a it's a regime that sits on top both with regarding to creating taxing rights like a notional permanent establishment provision mm -hmm. and also an arm, what an arm's length profit should be. The, there is no attempt in the OECD report to argue that this is f applying traditional transfer pricing arm's length standards. This is a reallocation on top of those arm's length standards. And so what about Pillar 2? And we're going to dive a little deeper into each of these. Yeah, what so about Pillar 2? Pillar 2 is in a, uh, is being put as the sort of second half of this, which is how to ensure there is no longer a race to the bottom on tax um, rates around the world. The perception has been that countries are, have been using tax regimes to encourage investment in their jurisdictions often that investment not necessarily matched with all the requisite substance or whatever it is and that countries have used rate to attract investment and the feeling has been therefore that there needs to be some minimum tax regimes to deal with that race to the bottom um, now part of this was provoked a little bit by the u.s introducing guilty which is effectively a a minimum tax regime top-up mm -hmm. but the OECD pillar 2 proposal is different from guilty um, has some similarities but is different and what the OECD proposal as, as it currently stands is that there are some rules that have a priority order and the base rules are that every jurisdiction should implement an income inclusion regime and what an income inclusion regime does is say, look, if I'm the parent company of a multinational group and I have this regime implemented, I will apply, apply a top-up tax on any companies that operate, subsidiaries of mine that operate in other jurisdictions that have a tax rate lower than the minimum tax rate, which, as it stands at the moment, is proposed to be 15%. And so, in that respect, it's pretty it's similar to guilty. It, it is, except it's by jurisdiction and it's based on accounting profits, not tax profits. And 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 there's a yeah. whole bunch of differences that we don't necessarily want to get into. So that's that's the priority rule as an income inclusion regime, mm -hmm. because the OECD is aware that maybe not everyone will implement that regime. They've provided a sort of backup regime, which is what's called the under tax payment rule, uh, UTPR, which says, look, if I'm a country that is making deductible payments and they are not being paid to relate and they're being paid to related parties and they're not subject to a tax that is a minimum tax of 15% and are not included in an income inclusion regime so in other words they haven't had the top up tax imposed on them and they're not suffering tax at least at 15% then the jurisdiction making the payment in theory can then deny deductions to get to a minimum tax rate of 15%. Um, now that secondary rule is a secondary rule um, and clearly the ambition, um, how likely this is, the ambition is that rule would never have, uh, apply because everyone would implement an income inclusion regime in which case the under tax payment rule gets turned off. The reality is it's going to have relevance in various situations where 
income inclusion regimes are not implemented or are not implemented at the same time right. or, or whatever. You can imagine timing becoming an well, issue. Well, timing, and even, you know, the, the problem the OECD will always face, and they faced it the first time around. I mean, you know, you and I have worked on clients where we're trying to work through the hybrid rules, uh, and every country seems to have somehow managed to take a consensus, a consensus set of legislation and write rules that are slightly different in some regards, sometimes better, sometimes worse. But the notion that everyone's going to implement exactly the same rule, I think, is a, a, a dream that may not come to pass. So we're always going to have those differences. There is another rule in the Pillar 2, which is the subject to tax rule, but that's relatively narrowly um, likely to have any impact. It talks. It, it deals with payments that are covered by a treaty where one of the treaty partners has introduced a regime that's preferential after the signing of the treaty. Right. So I mean, it's a relatively narrow field, I think. Yeah, so we'll put, we'll put that one to the side. Yeah. So it's it's early August 2021. Yeah. Um, just to give some context for our listeners, depending on when they're listening to this, where are we in the OECD's process related to BEPS 2.0? So it's been fascinating to me. I mean, I get questions, Calm, from my mom now about this, <laughs> a retired school educator, right? Because this it's in the news now. Right. I mean, it's it's remarkable to me that international tax is such in the news that my mom is asking me questions about this because when the G, we had the G7 meetings and the G20 meetings and then the OECD is trying to get to some consensus, remind me even kind of where we are. It's easy to get lost in all of this. So where we are is that the G7 reached, quotes unquote, a political agreement and the G20 endorsed that political agreement, which broadly said that, you know, the work done to date has largely reached a point where everyone agrees it should move, move forward to go through the proper design elements. Um, the inclusive framework, which is 139 countries, I believe, mm -hmm. um, were asked to also sign up to that consensus political agreement. About 132 countries did sign up. There were some countries that did not sign up at that point. They didn't say they wouldn't sign up. They weren't saying we we don't agree. They're just saying we're not ready to sign up now in the current framework. So that's all happened, and that's a political agreement. And, mm -hmm. and political agreements, um, if you're deeply cynical, or maybe not even worth the paper they're written on, because obviously then it has to be, go away and be designed. The next phase is by October of this year, they're supposed to have fleshed out those design elements. Um, there's an awful lot of fleshing out to be done. Um, in order to get to, you know, really well-defined mechanics. I mean, things like Pillar 1, there's been no discussion yet as to how you reallocate the profits, what's the mechanism for reallocating mm -hmm. the profits. There are some significant technical issues within that framework. Pillar 2 has many of the same issues as well. So huge amount to do in order to get to, you know, implementable uh, consensus recommendations and I don't think even October 21 is really targeted at that I think what October 21 is targeted at is a framework for then during 2022 the OECD to work up you know detailed proposals to then be considered by countries to be implemented yeah and what in that proposed implementation date is that January 1 2023 they, then, don't, they, they, they don't really have a date because okay. obviously that it's left then to the countries to go away and implement I mean the OECD never imposed a timetable 
what will normally happen is they'll have a recommendation for when countries should do this by and then countries will go away and you know consider their own political ramifications the their own government position some of those governments are you know minority governments mm -hmm. a lot of european jurisdictions run off minority governments it's not so easy to get things through right you've then got blocks of countries like the eu um where the proposals have to then somehow be conformed to eu law and make sure that there's no discrimination within the eu on those laws and, and to implement that so right. and normally the eu would do that through a directive that requires unanimity interesting to note that at least two of the countries that did not sign up to the inclusive framework are both in the eu right we're gonna we're gonna talk about so that. you know they've got to get those countries on board before they can get to implementation so i, I did want to get your reaction to a, a quote because one of the things that i like to do in my spare time is is listen to other tax podcasts you know kind of checking out the competition out okay. there and uh the OECD has has its own podcast, and Pascal Santamon, uh -huh. who is the head of tax policy, I don't have his exact title, the head of tax policy for the OECD, said this quote, and this was just this past week again in August 2021, that, quote, the next step is finalizing the deal in October. There is not much to do, just a few numbers to firm up, close quote. Um, so, uh, you know, Pascal, you know, has a position. He's, sure. he's the face of the OECD. He wants to be pushing the process forward. I think at some level you could say he's right. I mean, they need to agree the minimum tax rate. That is a number they need to agree. They need on pillar one to agree the thresholds to get into it and how much of the profit should be reallocated, and that is a number to be agreed. The problem is behind those numbers is a huge amount of detailed rules that will be required to make it oper mm. operational. Right, uh, and so I think that's a yes. At one level, if you if all you need to do is agree the principles of the numbers and where the thresholds are, it's probably true. But that isn't where the OECD needs to get to to pass this over as an imp implementable set of proposals. Got it. So so let's spend a little time talking about some of the challenges with Pillar One. You had already mentioned one as far as mm -hmm. how to reallocate profits. Um, one of our partners recently published a paper, uh, Carter K. Singh, and we'll mm. include a link in the show notes for those that are interesting or that are interested, um, specific to what companies may be subject to Pillar One. And you had talked a little bit earlier that there are some income issues and or there are some income thresholds to meet as yeah. well as margin thresholds. And I think based on his math, it was something like 60-something percent of those companies were, were U.S. multinationals. Yeah. But Maybe we start there with just the challenges of who does this apply to? I know there's been some questions about the, whether this should apply to the financial services industry. And yeah. talk about broadly some of the challenges with respect to the scope of Pillar 1. So there are still discussions to be had on carve-outs. Where it sits currently on carve-outs is it appears that extractive industries are carved out largely because they're largely taxed where they extract from anyway. Right. So that they really don't have no non-nexus. I mean, you can't hide a hole. Um, right. It's just difficult to yeah, do. Right. And, and they have all sorts of incremental taxes that are imposed. So I think that was a fairly early, you know, call out. Financial services was in doubt, and maybe still be in doubt. It, it, we'll have to see where it goes to. But the, the UK, for example, lobbied quite hard for financial services to be excluded. The UK economy is largely a financial service-based economy. Um, you could 
draw from that conclusion what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, it appears that financial services might be carved out. There are then challenges that they still have to work through around, you know, if your filter is going to be 10% profit margin and 20 billion of revenue, dollars of revenue, then you do have companies that have segments, some of which would fall within the high profit margin criteria, some which wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so there is ongoing debate around segmentation and how to deal with segmentation. Because if you take a whole multinational group together, it may well be that some would argue one part of that group should be subject to these rules and is being sort of covered up by a very low profit margin business that's also owned by that group. And in conglomerates or even in you know, non-conglomerate businesses, there can be different profit margin right. businesses. That's it's very just, common. Just the, the notion. So there's the segmentation point. There is the calculation of the reallocation. Um, you know, how, who is going to give to whom and what is the mechanism for giving it to whom? You know, is it going to be, you know, a, tran- a, a notional transfer pricing adjustment? You know, is that going to be taken into account when you start calculating the pillar two numbers? You know, is the tax, is pillar one going to come first and then you look at pillar two afterwards? Mm-hmm. You know, a whole stream of issues around that, uh, along with, you know, the accounting profit conundrums and how you deal with accounts and, and things like that. So Pillar 1 has a whole series of issues that need to be resolved uh, just in that. And and how you're actually going to implement that and, and what happens if, you know, 60% of the world goes forward with Pillar 1, but one of the countries that doesn't is one that would have to reallocate profit, then how are you going to force a reallocation of profit? That, those sort of issues need to be resolved. Well, and that's one of the questions that, that I have is thinking about the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's Janet Yellen or the at least the Biden administration has come out and said that that they think that uh, at least the, based on the current framework that the U.S. could be relatively neutral on given the size of our you know the customer, the user base that sits in here, you uh, that sits in the U.S. compared to you know those U.S. multinationals that may have profits allocated outside the U.S. You know, based at least on some of the data that we've seen and the analysis again by Carter right. K, that 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 seems difficult to square to me that the U.S. wouldn't become a, a significant loser without without doing those economic you know the economic analysis, but. The, the other thing that is related to that is that there appears to be some sort of presumption that the U.S. can implement, actually implement this rule through the form of legislation through Congress. So well, what is your reaction to that? And as we're thinking about from a U.S. policy perspective? Well, so I, I think the numbers we have to work through and once they've actually designed the filters and the, the, the profit margins, et cetera, you, you might get closer to that. I mean, there is a degree of truth that the U.S., remains the biggest consumer market in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you are if you are reallocating profit based on the size of the market and the contribution of the market, then you might expect the US to pick up some amounts. But if if people like Kartikeya and other people who've done reports on this are right and you know 66% of the com- companies that are going to be affected are US multinationals um then you know it's it seems to me it's unlikely to be a zero sum game for the US i would think now obviously and yet janet yellen must have sources of data i'm sure. sure she has you know 
lots of power to get data um, so we'll have to wait and see but it, it does seem to me to be slightly odd that if such a large percentage of the companies that are likely to be affected are US that you'd expect there to be a, a net zero in allocation away from the US and then in terms of implementation you're right I mean it's hard to see how you get this anywhere without clearly legislation to make it operational and over and above that potentially uh, you're going to have to deal with the treaty conundrum and um, you know most treaties have a rule in there regarding you're only liable to tax on profits allocable to a permanent establishment on arm's length principles well if you're going to go away and write a bunch of rules that say we've got a new taxing right that's over and above permanent establishment and we've got new allocation numbers that are over and above arm's length principle you have to square that with treaty language somehow now the OECD had experience of this with the previous round of a, of a BEPS reports where they right. introduced a multilateral instrument the one country that didn't sign up to the multilateral instrument one leading country was the US um, and part of that was simply the, the process by which treaties are negotiated and ratified through the US requires you know the Senate Finance Committee to sign off on those treaties and that's not going to be easy to do with a multilateral instrument so another challenge for the US specifically along with everyone else but for the US specifically well it, it's that second point I mean that seems like a really significant challenge right I mean you yeah. can imagine with the, the the Democrats in power you know if they're going to try to do something through yeah. reconciliation that you know they could try to get some type of pillar one legislation through that process but the 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 challenge of trying to get the the treaties uh, ratified seems to be even more challenging. Yeah, and and I think you know, this is where I think the OECD and the US over the course of this year have so the the, the you know the Biden administration Green Book made proposals in various areas, including in guilty. Some of those changes in guilty can be very much seen to tr be try and make them more consistent with the OECD approach. Like the country by country like approach. Like country by country, yeah. etc. But meanwhile, you know, the Green Book suggests the repeal of FDII. It was informative to note that the OECD updated report on harmful tax practices came out last week. And in there for the US FDII regime, which had been potentially subject to review was now removed from the list because it will be repealed in November. Well, Congress might be interested in the notion that it will be repealed. I mean, it's not up to the administration or the Treasury to repeal something. That's, uh, you know, that's left with the Congress and Senate to decide. So Yeah, that seemed a bit presumptuous. And uh, they clearly. just kind of <laughs> waved on the, the analysis of FDII that it's just going to go away. And the, you're right, the, the question is, well, if FDII doesn't go away, how is the OEC going to treat that regime? Yeah, and, and the reality is for U.S. multinationals, I think it's, you know, you might be between a rock and a hard place because at one level, the last thing U.S. multinationals, I think, should want is for the rest of the world to believe that the US is not being compliant with the OECD proposals because that gives them the ability to start applying things like the under tax payment rules and I think that's a lot more painful for US multinationals mm -hmm. than if maybe you get a guilty regime that can be seen to be compliant with the OECD Pillar 2 proposal. So it's all a lot of politics at the moment. Clearly on the US side there's a desire 
and you know the administration has not been shy to say it along with uh, Yellen to say you know we're trying to make our rules more consistent with the OECD so that the rest of the world will follow us and we'll all be in a good place because we'll all have consensus regimes the danger of that is if you can't get the US system to follow that the rest of the world believes that the US companies are somehow getting an advantage and they start writing rules that potentially are worse for U.S. multinationals. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, on, on the treaty point, because it's very interesting, I mean, I, I think you could make the argument, in fact, I think you've made the argument in the past that there are certain provisions of our existing U.S. law right. that are not arguably compliant with existing treaty. Uh, one that comes to mind is our foreign tax credit limitation, right. for, for, for example. So I guess one of the possibilities is that Congress could implement a pillar one type rule and then just frankly ignore the treaties yeah. and you just kind of move forward with domestic domestic rules. Which is largely what happened with Pete. Um, I mean, there are you know solid technical discussions to be had as to whether Beat is in breach of the, the provisions of most standard U.S. treaties. Um, you know that hasn't been tested yet. Um, the U.S. Treasury position, I think, has largely been, it's a, you know, after time sort of provision. So beat was written, it trumps the treaties. But mm -hmm. that's not clear that treaty partners will agree with that. And you're going to have exactly the same issue. I mean, again, the Green Book proposals, the Biden administration mm -hmm. is to repeal beat, replace it with shield. Well, shield itself will have to be made somehow consistent with the treaties that are out there. So let's turn to some of the challenges with Pillar 2. Um, one of the obvious ones is that there are a number of jurisdictions with, this, with respect to this minimum tax at 15%. One of the obvious ones that has definitely gotten some press is Ireland at a 12.5% rate. Obviously, either that rate itself or even if they implemented some type of top-up tax regime, yep. their their rate is only 12.5%. And, and there yep. are a number of other countries, including Hungary, that's also in the EU. I think Estonia generally yep. has a, you know, that, that don't either have a corporate income tax or significantly lower than that. Right. So talk a little bit about that and, and then any of the other, some of the other challenges that you foresee with, with Pillar 2. Well, I mean, I think the, the challenge for countries that are... Um, you know, a lower rate, however that lower rate is defined, is, you know, if, if if the regimes are going to be put in place such that, you know, if if you're Ireland and you've got a profit being earned in Ireland and being taxed at 12.5%, someone else is going to impose a top-up tax on that to take it from 125 to 15 Assuming it's not an Irish parent, is your point. Assuming it's not an Irish person, but yeah. even if it's an Irish parent, they're probably going to apply an under-tax payment rule. Um, but could the under-tax payment rule be more than the actual corporate tax? Potentially. Well, I guess. It's the denial of the deduction in the paying jurisdiction. So it, you yeah, know, fair enough. So it's interesting to see how that works when they get to the mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think, you know, the countries that are upset about it are upset about it at two levels. One is, you know, the noise that it's a sovereign right of a jurisdiction to set tax policy by reference to the economic policy in which they're trying to encourage. Uh, and then the other is, well, am I going to be somehow damaged by this? And I think Ireland would look at this and say, well, there's a chance that some people who may have invested in Ireland to get to a beneficial rate of 12.5% may choose not to if they're just going to pay the tax somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But the gap between 12.5% and 15% isn't that 
big. Yeah, right, so right. now 15 isn't set in stone. Um, there are a host of countries around the world who signed up to the inclusive framework but are saying that 15 is too low and they still want to negotiate that. Back to Pascal's comment, right. we just need to agree some numbers. It's a few numbers. It's one of the few numbers to firm up. <laughs> right. So, right. So, you know, 15 isn't set in stone. Um, you know, countries like Hungary are at 9%. They haven't made so much about the rate differential. They've made more about the sovereign right. Um, you know, countries like Estonia, which don't actually have a corporate tax on profits, it has a tax on distributions, are saying that we'd have to completely rewrite our entire regime. This is, you know, too far. So th there's a whole range of views on this. I mean, there's no doubt the intention of the OECD minimum tax is that, to be a minimum tax. And so they are trying to actually write regimes which level the playing field for countries with vis-a-vis -vis giving in investment incentives. Mm -hmm. Now, what my view is that will likely happen is if the minimum tax proposals come in, countries that want to attract in, uh, investments will look for other non-tax in, non incentives. Right. So, you know, job incentives, whatever right. it is. So, you know, I don't think it's going to change the economic policy of a country like Ireland that's been pretty open for many years that its tax regime is set up to encourage investment in its jurisdiction to create jobs and wealth, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not going to throw that policy out the window even with the minimum tax regime. Well, just like cities and states here in the U.S. that I mean, compete for investment thing. dollars, it's countries yeah. compete for foreign direct investment. Right. It's the same thing. And, you know, at one level, FDII was no different from a federal perspective. I right. mean, FDII was meant to encourage you know, investment and jobs in the U.S. Now, you can debate whether it did or it didn't, but that was its purpose. Sure. Um, so we'll see. One of the other challenges with Pillar 2, it seems, they, as you had mentioned, it talks about accounting profit. Yeah. And just timing and timing-related issues. Yeah. Um, and it, it just seems like, that seems like a very challenging concept to be able to actually write rules as we think about some of the timing difference between tax and accounting profits and then, to the extent that some companies have cyclical businesses that end up within a loss and then income. Talk a little bit about that. So yeah, one of the other minor things to be agreed um, in October is the, the timing conundrum. Uh, I mean, clearly the OECD has gone down a route of saying, if we're gonna apply minimum tax rules, we're gonna do it from accounting profits. It would be too much of a burden and too difficult to do it on the basis of redoing tax calculations. Now that's a bit anathema to a US right. principle where everything's always done on US tax principles and who cares about the book numbers. You have to go back and we recalculate the, the tax numbers. But the OECD latched onto that very early on. Mm -hmm. That that provides real challenges. I mean, you know, the current taxes and book taxes with deferred taxes, etc., are things that the OECD really don't understand that well. And when they looked at it and said, well, we need to deal with some sort of timing differences in the, in the Pillar 2 blueprint that came out earlier this year, that it talks about, you know, credit carry forwards and loss carry forwards. And, and so it, the pushback largely on the public consultation was, why don't you just use deferred tax numbers? That will properly reflect it. Now, of course, even with deferred tax numbers, you get things like valuation allowances you have to right. work through, et cetera, et cetera. So none of this is easy. And the OECD hasn't really solved that yet. That's part of the detailed mechanics that need to follow. But it is a precursor to 
some of the things the US is going to face as a challenge if the US goes to a country by country guilty regime. Because, you know, whether people agree with it or not, the blending approach of guilty allowed people to get comfortable that doing it on a period by period basis was okay because you got blending and that kind of smoothed the ups and downs a bit. Uh, and you know everyone sort of got comfortable with that on a country by country basis you can't do that so you you know you will get you know really strange results where if you do on a on an annual basis where you know you're setting up an operation in what is a high tax jurisdiction you're going to make losses for a few years because you're setting up an operation when you then start making money you're going to pay top up taxes unless you can find some way of giving temporal relief for the losses that have been incurred and that's very difficult stuff to write i think the u.s is going to face that struggle you know this fall um on writing country by country rules for guilty Mm -hmm. we'll see where they go to with that and i think the oecd have still got that entire struggle they did not resolve it in the blueprint they put up some ideas for consideration none of which were perfect by any stretch of the imagination and all of which were predicated on relatively simple examples. And as we know, life is rarely simple. So the, the facts will always be more complicated than assumed facts. Right. I mean, the other example that I like to give is just if depreciation or amortization is different between two different jurisdictions' right. rules, you could imagine a situation where if you're allowed to, let's say, depreciate or write off something yeah. in a local country and you can't do it in the U.S., well, you're going to end up with guilty, you know, actually U.S. tax income but then you may not actually have any profits in the or any income in the local jurisdiction, so it's going to look like it's low tax when it's really well, not. And the U.S. has got that problem coming up, and with R and D capitalization, right. that's already baked into the U.S. problems to be resolved. Even on a blended basis, that that's having mm-hmm. a significant impact. When you start going country by country, it's going to be a lot worse. So, whole host of issues to be resolved. I mean, I think the slight concern I've got is that the U.S has set itself up almost in timing to go first and appears through the comments of you know Yellen and others to be setting itself up to be quotes unquote leading the way and then the danger is one of two things one is the US does lead the way and turns around and finds the rest of the world hasn't quite followed or or possibly worse is they can't get this these are all these proposals through the Democrat caucus. They end up scaling back those proposals significantly. And the rest of the world says, well, the U.S. isn't doing what it promised to do. We'll go back on our deal. We'll start looking at under-tax payment rules. We'll start looking at other versions of Pillar 1, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that we're in a fairly delicate environment at the moment with you know lots happening on both sides. But... It's not clear that those are going to be coordinated in consensus, and certainly the timing will be different. Yeah, and your point on the U.S. piece is that you know the, the Dems are likely going to try to get something through reconciliation, presumably while they continue to control both right. houses of Congress, along with the executive branch, and query what they'll actually be able to do. And right. if they can't go as far, what does that mean for the overall? If they can't go as far as the OECD agrees and implement yeah. something consistent with Pillar 1 or Pillar 2, and we know that it's the thinnest of thinnest majorities in the Senate, right. and we've already seen some pushback from 
you know, the senators in Arizona and West Virginia, you know, how far can they actually go? Yeah, I mean, so far throughout the Pillar 2 discussion, U.S. multinationals, I think, have been relatively comforted by the, the, you know, the, the statements that say, you know, guilty will somehow be deemed to be a compliant regime with an income inclusion regime. And that's key for U.S. multinationals. Because in the absence of that, you've then got countries looking at the US system and saying, we don't think it's being taxed enough because you're cross-crediting from jurisdiction X to jurisdiction Y because FDII doesn't have a nexus regime, because, because, because. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start going down those routes, then countries will start thinking about writing rules that are definitely not preferable from a US multinational perspective. So I think an important lesson, particularly for the U.S. MNCs, but also for the foreign parented groups to engage in policy with policymakers, particularly here here in the U.S., yeah. to make sure that those policymakers understand the implications beyond tax and what they have on job opportunities and their overall business. That you know these obviously tax policy changes can have significant impact on companies' businesses. Yeah, and the hope, obviously, the hope would be that. Everything can work forward in a consensus way, and we'll get end up with results. But you know, it's we got a long way to go on both sides. I mean, obviously, the time frame for the U.S. is significantly, in my mind, shorter than the time frame for the OECD. Whilst October for the OECD sounds very soon, it's not going to be a fully worked up set of proposals in October. Well, as those developments happen, you'll hear about it on the Cross Border Tax Talks podcast. Calm, always a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Thank you. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Callum Dewar, PwC's Integrated Global Structuring Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.